Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Anna Vaetharuit, and I'm hosting this third series to look afresh at what home is, and what it means. Previously, we've looked at home from a wide range of perspectives, including in series two, share experiences of home during the pandemic. This season, we'll be in conversation with academics and activists who have moved beyond traditional ideas of home as a place of safety, privacy and care. Each episode will propose alternative readings of home from its engagements with histories of empire, the politics of micro-living under neoliberalism, home as a queer space, or the changing meanings of home for people who cross borders. As always, we draw inspiration from our collections and the stories missing in them to rethink the past through the lens of the present. In this episode, we'll be looking at what homes can do to our bodies and to what extent their design can accommodate experiences of impairment and illness. Domestic design rests on assumptions about who lives and uses that space, about what our bodies can do, how our bodies think, move and feel. But all too often, ordinary homes do not recognize the possibility of disability. They're built around the idea of non-disabled bodies, and this presents an injustice and major problem for people with lived experiences of disability. In this episode, we're going to explore the extent to which definitions of home and house design have been exclusionary and how they might instead include different kinds of bodies. As in other episodes, we're exploring the ways in which home is not a straightforwardly safe or comfortable space and how it can conflict with dominant conceptions of home as a space of control and security. And with us to talk about this and more, I'm so glad to be joined by Amy Hamray and Ellen Clifford. Thanks so much both for accepting our invitation. It's wonderful to be able to speak to you today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Amy Hamray is a disabled designer and accessibility researcher. They are assistant professor of medicine, health and society in Vanderbilt University, where they direct the critical design lab. They host the Contra podcast on disability design justice and are author of Building Access, Universal Design and the Politics of Disability, published in 2017 by the University of Minnesota Press. And we'll be including a link to that in the show notes. Ellen Clifford is a disabled activist with Disabled People Against Cuts in the UK and author of The War on Disabled People, Capitalism, Welfare and the Making of a Human Catastrophe, published last year in 2020 by said books. I wanted to begin with a broad question around this idea of who the world is built for. And I take this from the introduction of your book, Amy, in which you write, the built world is inseparable from social attitudes, discriminatory systems, and knowledge about users which designers must keep in mind. Could you expand on that question, who is the world designed and built for? Sure, that's a great question. So I would say as a historian, that up until the early 20th century, the world was built primarily for non-disabled people. And that meant people who use two legs to walk around and who have a great deal of physical strength and have vision and sightedness and hearing. And in the time since then, there have been some very modest changes because 
the world knows different things about disability and the existence of disabled people who are able to survive and live in ways that people were not able to in the 19th century. We also have different technologies that enable disabled people to participate in public space, for example. And so architects since the 20th century have in very limited and inadequate ways started to think about a greater range of bodies and people and and ways of thinking and using space. And so there are still many places that default to a non-disabled person. And we would say the majority of spaces are still built for non-disabled people. And then there are some spaces because of laws or because of the interests of designers that have started to become more inclusive. Thanks, Amy. I want to link this to some of the collections in the museum because we see how some of that rhetoric around normalcy in 1930s magazines that have architectural examples of architectural designs, but also designs of domestic interiors. And they're very much built on those notions of standardization, of uniform design that are supposedly neutral, but obviously they were constructed around bodies that were, again, not disabled. So I wonder if you would like to expand, and also, Helen, if you'd like to jump in on this, on what those shifting understandings have been of design, the body. Sure. So, you know, the concept of normal didn't exist until the 19th century. And standards for design emerged from things like the military needing to make uniforms for soldiers or designing airplanes and cockpits to fit a whole bunch of different kinds of bodies or factories designing machines that could be used in standard ways. And so because the concept of the norm didn't exist until industrialization, basically, There was, in some ways, there was like greater acceptance of bodily difference before that, although it's also true that disabled people were not often surviving under those conditions. And in the 20th century, the field of ergonomics came about. It came from the military and expanded to the civilian sector. And ergonomics in its own weird way was about saying that there are a whole bunch of different types of bodies and they ought to be accommodated. But the reason why ergonomists were interested in that was that they thought that the differences between bodies were impediments to productivity and efficiency. And so that design for a kind of range of bodies rather than the standard really comes from capitalism. And disabled people have pushed back against that even further and said, We don't have to just be productive all the time. That's not what access should be about. Access should be about being able to participate in society regardless of whether an adaptation makes us more productive. Yeah, so I fully agree with everything Amy's said there. And yes, the concept of normal didn't arise until the rise of capitalism and the industrial revolution. And when we say that, we're not meaning to say that everything was brilliant. As Amy said, disabled people often didn't survive. But there were different forms of socio-economic organising. What we don't have from the past is evidence of the places where ordinary people, the poorer people, would have lived and worked. And it's 
as true now as it ever was that there's this intrinsic relationship between disability and poverty in Britain today for example disabled people are three times more likely to live in severe material deprivation than other people so the kind of dwellings and workplaces from the past where disabled people would have been we don't really have the evidence of that now to be able to look and see were there different kind of adaptations that they made given that there would have been a proportion of people living with some form of impairment particularly given that health technologies weren't as advanced then. But I just wanted to jump back a bit just to answer that first question about who is the world built and designed for. And I think whilst agreeing with Amy, my take is slightly different. I think my answer was going to be that it's built for profit, whether that's developers or other businesses who are directly benefiting through construction. And of course, in London at the moment, a particular issue is housing as a financial asset where it's not built actually as housing at all, or whether it's like local authorities who are discharging their responsibilities in a way that they try and do as cheaply as possible, but also in a way that doesn't impede the government or at least this government's economic agenda, which is to put the interests of business first and those of people last. What I find quite interesting is that for all the disabled people and speaking as an activist, we do a lot of campaigning about inaccessibility of buildings. The most accessible examples I know are Weatherspoons pubs, which has a reputation of having much cheaper alcohol and food and opening long hours from quite early in the day and also betting shops. So on the estate where I live, there are quite a few betting shops and they are, in terms of accessibility, absolutely beautiful. They've got level access, they've got wide spaces for wheelchairs to turn, but they've also got, you know, heating in winter. They have people to help in terms of filling in betting slips. So they're kind of a model of accessibility in some ways. And why is that? That's because the people who are profiting from them know their target audience, who they're trying to make money out of and we also see that accessibility can be used as political cover sometimes not to say that particular examples aren't progressive so an example of this would be the south bank the area you know south of the thames when boris johnson was mayor there was a lot of work done on that to make it a fully accessible area and it's brilliant because it is a place in london where you can meet friends who are wheelchair user so that's a place where we can meet but at the time that the government and the mayor would use it whenever they were asked about disability and this was the same time that the government was making dramatic cuts to the benefits and social care support that disabled people need to live on. So accessibility can be used quite cynically where there are discrete projects that can be used and amplified as cover. We see attempts to fail to make things accessible when all the technology and the knowledge is there We have the situation with homes, it makes a very, very small amount of the overall cost of building a home goes to make it wheelchair accessible. And yet the developers continue to lobby against in London, we have a target that 10% of new builds should be wheelchair accessible. And every time the London plan comes up for review, the developers are there and they're lobbying against it. But this isn't something that we only disabled people experience, we experience it more so than other groups because of the additional access needs that we have but it's something that everyone's facing at the moment particularly with the planning deregulation that's gone on that's going to benefit the developers and it's going to mean that that anyone who can't afford housing is going to be stuck in unsafe conditions my brother's actually a researcher at ucl who's been looking into permitted developments 
where offices are being or commercial premises can be converted into residential and they're because of the planning deregulation that means that they don't have to be built to health and safety requirements no size requirements so let alone being able to even think about accessibility they're just not safe for human habitation so yeah <laughs> i think definitely disabled people are last on the list to be thought of You're listening to That Feels Like Home, a podcast produced by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture at Middlesex University. I'm Anna Ruiz, and I'm talking with Amy Amray and Ellen Clifford about who the world is designed for and how. We now move on to talk about the economics behind accessible housing. Ellen, thanks for drawing that connection between the economic system and disability. I wonder if there is something here that also relates to what you were saying earlier about who's a productive citizen, that there's then this narrative also of who becomes a benefit scrounger and those sort of negative representations of people that might be needing welfare benefits or access to affordable housing. And if, Amy, you'd like to comment on some of the things that Ellen has been saying, but in a US context, particularly with a chronic shortage of housing, both in the private sector, but also in the public social housing sector. Sure. So, you know, the US is different from the UK in many ways. Our welfare situation has been, in terms of like the state providing housing and resources, has been severely restricted since the 1980s under Reagan. And even earlier than that, the ways in which the government incentivized building accessible housing had entirely to do with the military industrial complex and who was given funding and resources to access housing in terms of veterans coming back from war. And so there's this interconnected history of disabled veterans who are white coming back from World War II, being given mortgages and funding to go to university and all of these things in order to live a particular kind of single family suburban life. And there was a whole bunch of research about how to make suburban homes more wheelchair accessible for disabled veterans, the veterans who've been wounded in war. At the same time that a lot of historians have documented the ways that those same programs excluded Black veterans and Black people in general from accessing mortgages and accessing single-family homes. And so those policies were responsible for the racial segregation in our cities. And in the time that disability access laws have existed that affect either single-family housing on a local scale or multi-family housing that is, for example, federally subsidized, there's been this kind of, there's like a split because federally subsidized homes have had to be accessible in some ways or abide by certain standards since the 1970s. And a lot of the people that I studied in my book on the history of disability access in the U.S., they were working on things like apartments and trailers and things like that, like ways that disabled people were trying to find accessible and affordable housing. At the same time, you know, there's a big critique of the disability rights movement in the U.S. and the passage of the ADA because many of the supporters of that law and the people behind it were very wealthy disabled people. So they were kind of like out of the ordinary in terms of the broader population of disabled people 
And the laws reflect that and the laws protect businesses from having to make accommodations that they deem unreasonable or to make major structural changes. The laws don't require widespread adoption. It's really like on disabled people to enforce them and bring forward lawsuits and complaints and stuff. And so all of the ways that neoliberal policies and restrictions on access to affordable housing are affecting disabled people are part also of this broader history of some disabled people being given certain privileges because of the perception of who is disabled and who is not. And then also just in terms of like where accessibility laws tend to focus and where they do not. And so one of my critiques of the ADA too is that it relies so heavily on regulations of public spaces, specifically businesses that accommodate to the public, and then things like transportation systems. But because of the way that the law is structured in the U.S., the ADA does not regulate the accessibility of private homes. And so it really then becomes up to these kinds of like piecemeal reforms in individual cities and their building codes and things like that. And that has a lot of effects on the ability of disabled people in general to access housing. If it is the case that housing development is driven by perceived market value and who is a consumer who's going to have a lot of money, then, you know, in places where there isn't a development boom, it's also true that accessible housing may not be built or it may only be built for people who are of a certain class status. And so, yeah, I think that all of these things are interconnected and that there's definitely like a racial component to it as well. I think that's really interesting about the military aspect there in the U.S., and also about the racism element within there. It's also true in Britain that we had the Disability Discrimination Act, and then that was subsumed by the Equality Act. And very similarly, that's basically unenforceable. I think there was actually a a House of Lords committee that ruled that it's basically unenforceable because, again, it's left up to individuals. In London, we do have some targets around accessible home building. That's only for new builds, but we do need new houses being built. And there are lots of developments going on across London. But the difficulty for disabled people here really is because we are much more likely to be reliant on state benefits disproportionately disabled people who are in work are in low paid, insecure jobs where you still need to be in receipt of benefits in order to be able to survive. What disabled people really need, we really need social housing, we really need secure tenancies, but also for, as as anyone experiences on housing benefit, there is a big gap between rent and what you get in your housing benefit. So if you're in the private rented sector, then you have to make up that shortfall yourself. So what disabled people desperately need is social housing. And that's the thing that's not being built. The government brought out a a green paper on social housing in, I think it was summer of 2018, and didn't mention disabled people at all, except in the section 
on extra care supported housing. So in other words, kind of segregated complexes where all the older people and the disabled people would be put together. So not recognising the fact that actually we are disproportionately represented among social housing tenants, but also not recognising that we have a, a, a should have a right to live alongside our neighbours within our communities rather than being put into these ghettos. So that's a real problem that we have. We do have, as I say, these targets, but the problem is those targets tend to be for what's being built that's called affordable housing that isn't affordable, that's out of reach of disabled people to begin with. That ties in to go back to the question about the benefit scroungers. I mean, this is all part of the same agenda, which is about cutting back public services as far as possible, privatising as much as possible. So that means, you know, getting people off benefits, pushing them off, and also trying to push people into the private sector and away from social housing. So we've seen more and more cuts, as you're saying, in the UK. And Amy, you say that the US landscape is a bit different. But I'm interested to know, is there a resegregation you use the word ghetto, Ellen, happening at the moment. If we think of the civil rights activists working in the 60s and 70s, the movement for independent living, what were the victories of that time? And is the landscape now bleaker? I would say that it's important to remember that when those activists were doing their work, they were responding to conditions of widespread institutionalization. And so what they meant by having the right to live independently was having the right to live outside of institutions and nursing homes and hospitals and things like that. And so some of those activists in Berkeley, California in the 1960s, when disabled students started to be admitted to the university, they didn't have accessible dorms, so they actually had to live in a campus infirmary. But, you know, it's not as if institutions don't exist now. And we know from the COVID-19 pandemic that disabled people who are institutionalized are living in kind of like congregate housing conditions or nursing homes were at really high risk of having severe COVID complications or even just becoming infected because there are so many people in those spaces. But so, you know, a lot of what they were doing to challenge the definition of home was to demand access to home in the community, which did happen for some people through deinstitutionalization. Like the fact that the front door of a house could have a ramp meant that a person did not have to live in a nursing home, for example, if they had access to other forms of care. And whether that is being challenged or not, I think kind of like depends on a broader set of factors that include everything that we've been talking about here, and it includes access to work or other kinds of financial support. In terms of structures, like we've seen that there are more possible accessible structures that are actually best practices for accessibility and things like that. And that in some ways is related, but it's also separate from the question of like how societies organize disabled people, whether in and amongst the community or separate and apart from it. And that has to do in part with how accessible public spaces are, but also other policies and the availability of resources and things like that. I was just reflecting on the US situation and I was wondering whether we 
got further along the deinstitutionalization route, but what's definitely true is that we are now going backwards and the government's consistently missed its targets to close all of the long-stay institutions and we're seeing a growth of private hospitals. But what I think is another matter of concern is the phenomenon of reinstitutionalization within disabled people's own homes. And this was something that the UN Disability Committee, who came and carried out a special investigation of the UK in 2015, and they published the findings that the UK government was guilty of grave and systematic violations of disabled people's rights due to austerity and welfare reform. And that finding came out in in 2016. And not long after, they published a general comment on independent living. And I think they clearly had situation in the UK in mind when they were talking about this concept of reinstitutionalisation, which is where disabled people are being left without basic support that they need, unable to leave their homes, having to go for hours and hours without access to the toilet or to water or to food. And this is becoming more and more common. Having said that, though, generally disabled people would still much rather be in their own homes in those conditions than be placed in homes where they give up. If you're reliant on visits from personal assistance in order to be able to function, as many people are finding, then you don't have choice and control. You don't have choice about what time you get up or go to bed. That's down to what time your personal assistance or, or if you're receiving care agency support, what time people come. So there's definitely within that concept of reinstitutionalisation, a, a lack of autonomy, but still people find the idea of being in care homes or nursing homes much more frightening because of the potential level of abuses and just power dynamics and that lack of autonomy. There's a a phrase in the disabled people's movement, better dead than in a nursing home. And that's the way a lot of people are. And increasingly, local authorities are saying to people, if we calculate your support needs as exceeding a certain amount, then we will put you in a care home against your wishes. And what we found over the last 10 years is that the courts are very reluctant to make any decisions that interfere with government or local government's decision making over resources and economics. So this is really frightening for disabled people who, you know, my generation had grown up with the idea that we could live in our own homes. And having that taken away is very, very frightening for people. Ellen, I wanted to ask you there if you could speak a bit more about the specifics of those political and institutional processes that shape the domestic design to fulfil or not the needs of disabled people, how those processes, those institutional processes actually work. The processes are at a local authority level and in terms of access to accessible housing, it's very chaotic because there's such a shortage of accessible homes. I think February 2020 
is the last figure I'm aware of. There was just under 120,000 disabled people living in unsuitable accommodation. And the average, I think in 2018, the Equality and Human Rights Commission worked out that the average waiting time for accessible accommodation is something like 25 months. But for some people, it can be, you know, it can be up to a a decade, much longer. And the kind of conditions we're talking about are are people not being able to access their own bathrooms. So having to wash in a paddling pool with a hose pipe in your living room, for example. And then we've got the situation in Grenfell, where, of course, the disabled people on the upper floors couldn't get out and were left to die in that fire horrifically and still we have disabled people housed on upper floors of tower blocks where they're not able to get a personal evacuation plan and all of this is caused by the this chronic shortage of accessible homes the reason for that is because government won't invest in more social housing they want to move people into the private rented sector but disabled people don't feel safe in the private rented sector they can't afford it even if you're on benefits you can't afford it and private landlords don't want to rent to disabled people for a mixture of reasons it can be stigma around benefit claimants but also a lot of direct discrimination against disabled people i don't think there's going to be a resolution to this problem until there is more investment in actual accessible social housing. It's also because of the cuts, the big cuts to local authority budgets, a very chaotic system. There's no kind of stock take of accessible properties because, of course, it's done on a, in London, a borough by borough basis. There's no rationing. There's no distribution. It's very ad hoc the decisions that get made. Disabled people can apply for things called disabled facilities grants from their local authority, which lets them have adaptations made to their properties. It could be their own property or to social housing, but they can be quite difficult to get. And again, that's at the discretion of the people who making the decisions about money. And with cuts, it's less likely for people to get those. At a central government level, what you then have is a lack of oversight and a lack of concern because disabled people are not a group of people that this government likes to think about. They prefer to deny that we exist because our existence does get in the way of the economic agenda, which is to effectively deny disability in order to deny disability benefits and deny any form of state support effectively. In this episode of That Feels Like Home, I've been talking with Amy Hamray and Ellen Clifford about the politics of housing for disabled people. In the next section, we move on to the topic of design and try to unpack a now very popular idea, universal design, what it means and to what extent it might afford truly collective access. On the subject of domestic design, I wanted to ask you, Amy, about the research you've done on universal design as a concept that's become really popular since the 1990s to refer to inclusive design that benefits everyone. But you've written quite critically about the discourse behind universal design and how it's shifted from its origins. Can you speak a bit about this? Define a bit what universal design is, but also what are some of the concerns? 
In the 80s, the disabled architect Ron Mace, who's from the United States, he offered this term universal design and he wrote an article where he basically argued that if we design architecture and spaces for disabled people, then non-disabled people also benefit from that. But he was really emphasizing the value for disabled people as well. And he made all sorts of arguments about this is prior to the Americans with Disabilities Act. So he made all sorts of arguments, basically trying to convince architects that this was a good idea and it was in their self-interest and also that they should care about disabled people. And in the 90s, so the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, and There was then this kind of assumption that the law had taken care of disability discrimination. And so a lot of the rhetoric of universal design shifted to becoming more about the market. And instead of emphasizing civil rights or even disability and disabled people, all of these companies that make items for luxury homes or lighting or whatever started to use the term universal design kitchens. They started to use the term universal design and really market toward aging people who are homeowners and have certain kinds of privileges. And my critique of this is that what happened as a result is that that original meaning of universal design as kind of like a request for solidarity from non-disabled people toward disabled people and the understanding and meaning of disabled identity as tied to access to the built environment, like all of that kind of fell out. And so for the most part, universal design has become very apolitical and it doesn't have to be that way. There are certainly people who push back against it and use it in different ways. But because that shift happened, there's just like a lot of components of disability experience and identity that are just not that legible to designers. Or if you talk to an architect or even an architecture student, they may think about disability just in terms of aging. They may not think about sensory disabilities or neurodivergence or people who have chronic illnesses. It's just like a very limited understanding of disability. And that shapes the products that get made and that are mass manufactured. It shapes who architects tend to think about as important in the home or in public spaces. So there have been alternative terms that have emerged to try to address some of that. And the disability justice movement in particular talks instead about collective access, for example. And collective access means that we all are responsible for producing access for each other and that non-disabled people ought to be in solidarity with disabled people around this. And just on that, I was interested in also what you were saying about the education of designers, of architects, and I suppose that's one of the key areas to work on in terms of reimagining what design can be. I love that term, collective access, as that sort of co-responsibility and and also acknowledgement of the interdependency of all of us, disabled and non-disabled people. I wanted to ask you in this sense, your thoughts, if we're to reimagine what access can be, we're talking about housing specifically, but also the built environment at large. Are we to think more about co-designing that are much more relational in terms of the process of this design? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that part of the reason why we're in this situation is that design schools are really inaccessible 
to disabled students. And so there just aren't that many disabled designers. And I think that that needs to change on a structural level. And also that design processes can't just use the codes as the bare minimum in designing because then we end up with building, you know, like I was part of a project where we were trying to design a building that would exceed the ADA and the architects still made a staircase, the sort of central design feature of the building. And they were like, it's fine because there's an elevator in the back. And I do think that something Mm -hmm. like co-design processes could address that. But I think that architecture on the whole is not going to change its attitudes and core assumptions until there Mm -hmm. are more disabled architects who are leading in that field. I really like this idea of collective access. I think one of the difficulties with the idea of universality is that sometimes we have conflicting access needs. So, for example, uh, tactile paving for blind and visually impaired people can be difficult and uncomfortable for wheelchair users. There are many examples, but within disability activism, we find ways of accommodating our respective access needs through discussion and collective action. In terms of how we influence design and architecture, I agree that there is far too little thought about these issues. I'm still cringing at the idea of the the staircase being put into that design. I think much more co-design and co-production of government policies would be great in order to then be able to influence things like co-design. There are discrete examples. So the Arsenal football stadium, the new stadium, the Emirates. I'm not an Arsenal fan, but I'm given to understand (laughs) that there was a really good process of working with the disabled fans on the design for that stadium in terms of accessibility. But there you've got a club with a lot of money, but you also, Arsenal's based in Islington, which traditionally was the home of a lot of the uh, biggest, loudest disabled activists. So I guess that kind of arose out of those specific circumstances there. But there are these examples which show how things can work. But getting that out on a much wider scale is part of the challenge. I really liked in the questions that you put together, Anna, thinking about this idea of how housing design could better embody the interdependency, which I think is such an important key feature of the way disabled people live. And I think to be able to explore those concepts in more detail would be wonderful. I think we spend so much time fighting for survival, like literally for survival with COVID, for example. But now we've got assisted suicide legislation going through parliament here. So, you know, these are life and death questions that we spend our time kind of thinking about, but our lives could be, it's really important to imagine how our lives could be so improved. You know, we we have differences, big differences between members of the disabled community, depending on our impairments. You know, I I think we do spend a lot of time thinking about politics and socioeconomics and, and the bigger world out there, because, of course, what we're able to do in our own homes depends upon the access to the resources we need to survive. But I do think that it would be good to be able to have some space to think more about the spaces we live in. I'm a mental health survivor um, for people living with mental distress, for people with chronic illness. We spend a huge amount of time in bed. Under lockdown, we've discussed about, you know, whether we want to have ourselves on camera when we're in bed or, or not. And is that a radical act? Because this is where we spend our lives.
Thanks so much. I just wanted to finish with a quote by the late activist Vic Finkelstein, and I'll read that out. We cannot understand or deal with disability without dealing with the essential nature of society itself. I thought that was um, just a good place to end and also to just say thank you to both of you for joining us today. It's been great to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening and especially huge thanks to my guests for this episode, Amy Hamray and Ellen Clifford, for joining us to talk about the history and politics of design and housing and accessibility. This is the final episode of the series, but you can catch up with other episodes which critically question traditional ideas of home and venture into more critical readings of this space. For more information about this episode, show notes and reading list, please visit our website www.moda.mdx.ac.uk. You can also find a link to a survey in our show notes and we'd love to hear from you. Please tell us what you think or add your comments on Instagram at Moda Museum. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. We're also keen to expand the museum collections around home. So if you'd like to know more, please get in touch with us via email moda at mdx.ac.uk. I'm Ana Baezarruiz and this podcast is brought to you by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, Middlesex University. We'll be back again soon. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.